Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me to do some soul-searching about Pixar's latest are Patrick. Quiet Coyote. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't Not... know when to put it in there, so I just did it. There. <laughs> do we want Quiet Coyote on the podcast? I hope nobody... No, we don't. I just wanted to say that. I don't think there's any appropriate time to say it during the show, so I went ahead and just got it out of the way. We should start using that, though. If one of us is talking too long, we should just be like, Quiet Coyote. Okay. <laughs> but Patrick's not the only one here. We're also joined by Coles. Hello, hello. Well, unable to benefit from the typical theatrical windfall that this studio's films usually bring, Disney still managed to capture the attention of families everywhere when Soul launched on Disney Plus Christmas morning. Critical and public response have both been mostly positive, and the film is unsurprisingly going to be competitive in several Oscar categories. But it also has its fair share of critics, which I feel is an increasingly regular thing with Pixar films. <laughs> I am excited to dig into this one, though, and kind of discover where we all fall. So we're just going to get right to it. And as we do, we start with our one word takeaways. And Kales, why don't you get us going? My one word takeaway was beauty. Uh, the one thing that this film really cherishes the most is in, its, in its message is really showing us that there's beauty everywhere in our life. I mean, even down to the little things from the breath we take to, you know, the things we see outside to drinking a glass of water. We we have to be more cognizant of the little things around us because that makes us appreciate life. I mean, the clear um, ending talks about how you only get your spark when you when you are ready to live, when you find that willingness to actually go out and exist and try to do something with this life that we've been given. That's when. That's when you're going to find, you know, something to be happy about. You know, it's, there's a lot of stress, a lot of depression, a lot of just chaotic things are going on right now. And I know for people, it can be easy to just see all that and just think that, oh, the world is ending and like nothing can be good. Like, you know, 2020 happening all over again. But I, I want to tell everybody, challenge everybody to just appreciate the people who you're around, appreciate your family, appreciate, you know, the job you have. If you have a job right now, just appreciate everything that you do have, you know, so that you won't feel in content all the time with things you don't have. Um, I mean, us talking right now in this podcast, that's beauty right there. I mean, hundreds of years ago. I know. No way Thank you. <laughs> appreciate it. I'm glad you can recognize that. Cheers. Yes, I mean, it's it's a beautiful thing right now, at least I think it is, you know, for us to be talking about a film that I'm pretty sure we all fell in love with. So yes, right. um, beauty, that's my um, one word takeaway. I'm over here making like beauty shot poses for Kales, <laughs> I am beautiful. Patrick, what is your one word takeaway about me? About you? <laughs> well, Kales uh, picked complicated? one. Complicated? <laughs> uh, let's see. <laughs> he goes into, no, I'm not going to do it. Fair. Okay. <laughs> Influential was what I pulled out of this movie, and it was pretty much a no-brainer the first time I watched it. I've seen this twice since it came out on Christmas Day, and that word has just slowly increased in terms of its importance to me. I think this movie 
not only is influential within the realm of the story itself and the characters that are influenced by one another, but also, Coles, as you alluded to, the ability that it has to influence us as an audience. We talk all the time on the show that our mantra is how things make us feel. And oftentimes, feelings are good. We like the emotion, and it's valid, but it can also be very manipulative. And movies that allow us to be influenced by them in a positive way in order to change an aspect of how we see things or how we interact with one another is a good product, in my opinion, especially in the time period that we're living. And I'm not just talking about 2020. I'm talking about just the generalities of being immersed in information overload and being influenced by any number of individuals because we all have a voice. I think when it comes to the influence that we need, soul brings something very important. And even if you don't like jazz, which can be a very valid thing, it's important enough to watch this movie get past that because it's not just about jazz. And I think the influence that comes from it is something that we can all use right now. Good stuff from both of you. And I actually don't think it's really much about jazz at all. And yet my one word takeaway is jazzing. (laughs) And I'll tell you, you know, usually we joke about this, Patrick, you and I offline about how sometimes we've done this so long that picking a one word for this section becomes a challenge because we don't want to reuse them. And ultimately we have to at times because we may have a similar feeling. But this movie, it was immediate to me that like, oh, it's got to be jazzing because that's a made up word. (laughs) And it fits the thematic like storyline of this so well. And it's just jazzing in the literal sense. And I agree with what Coles was saying about beauty and this and the podcast being a great example of that. This is a word for me that I can actually put in my vocabulary and use going forward in my life. I can call things jazzing all the time as a joke. And anyone who is in love with soul is going to understand what I'm talking about. And so I think that it's great. I think the way it's used in the film is beautiful and impactful to me. And it's a brilliant little twist on what jazz actually is, the improvisational improvisational nature of making music and the improvisational nature of just enjoying every moment of your life and whatever comes your way. That's what jazz is. It's about getting in the, quote, zone and just playing and let it flow. And that's what living life is all about, is letting it flow. Uh, and I think that defines the enjoyment of experiencing everyday life. And so I just loved the word jazzing and the way that it kind of got used throughout the film, both as humor, but as kind of a meaningful thing too. All right. Well, here's our spoiler warning, folks. We are going to go ahead and get in to the nitty gritty of the film. We're going to talk about it in depth. So we'll tell you everything that happens if you continue on. So please go check it out on Disney plus first before you come back and listen to this episode. Well, the film features pretty heavy existential ideas, first and foremost, (laughs) about death and purpose and passions, etc. And the first thing I kind of wanted to talk about was how you guys felt 
about the film's approach to storytelling kind of as compared to other Pixar films, or I guess more like as compared to Pixar's library. Was this too adult, in your opinion? Did you find anything specifically that you felt makes it accessible for kids and families? Did you watch it with your kids of varying ages? I would love to hear how those experiences went. I can tell you from my perspective, watching it the first time as an adult was by myself, and it felt very adult to me. I didn't really think there was a lot of kid quote humor in it. Uh, I thought that the talking cat was pretty much placed there to be the focal point for young children to latch onto and get through the story as we went through the journey phase. But for me, it was really always about the big ideas from the very start of it. And I never saw it as both, I guess in the past, I felt like Pixar films sometimes are kiddie, kid films that have an underlying layer of deeper meaning that adults can pick up on. This felt much the opposite to me. It felt much more like, hey, this movie's for me, and it's cute enough that a kid could enjoy watching it, but I don't think they're going to get anything out of it. And since the second time I watched it was with my teenagers, and they were old enough to really understand everything that was going on, I didn't get to experience any sort of different opinion on this. We all just felt like, hey, we get it. And so I wondered how that worked out for you guys. And so, Coles, why don't we start with you? Um, what were your thoughts on just the whole adultness of Soul? The thematic material is strong. Um, I haven't seen a Pixar film this strong in thematic storytelling since... I would say Wally or even Inside Out. And Inside Out is kind of the film that I can compare this to because Inside Out was about personalities inside us and what makes us who we are. And this film kind of goes into it, you know, once Joe ends up going into the um, great before and he has to become a mentor and he's figuring out that these little souls, they just need one little thing to make them earthbound. And they are taken and sent to these different personality types. Like like the um, teacher was talking about, okay, we're going to make these people self-absorbed. Okay, we're going to make these people very intelligent. We're going to make these aloof. And that's where I kind of got the inside-out connection. Um, for me, as far as being too adult, I wouldn't say too adult, but it is an adult film. On the second time around, I was able to capture some of the themes that it was coming across and they hit pretty well to me because for one i've gone through some of the things that they talked about is like far as depression and having doubts and you know being closed off and feeling like you don't have a purpose so i feel that when i watched it with my girlfriend and her kid she mostly got the humor out of the animation part where they were in the great before with all, all the little souls anything else was not really humor, and I wonder how she would take it, because we had took her to see The Lion King last year, the live-action um, remake, and she really wasn't into it because of how lifelike it made everything feel. It wasn't like an animation feel to it. With this film, she is mostly concerned just about the humor, not really any other themes, nothing that really got talked up to me, but she enjoyed it, and uh, we all enjoyed it, and I think it still has um, purpose as a family film, because you know, with the message that it gives out, you can turn to your kid and be like, hey, like, 
this is how you're supposed to look at life. Like, you know, don't let stress get you down. It could, it could be a good bridge for parents to have conversations with their kids about so, some of life's biggest concepts, which I think is a very remarkable um, tint to the storytelling. So I do say it's adult, but there's enough here for kids to enjoy. But it's not like an Onward that was released last year, which felt more kid-like than this film. But I don't see anything wrong with that. I think Pixar does pretty well with blending things for the kids and things for the adults. And I wonder, I'm wondering if this is going to be their new type of um, animation storytelling, or unless this is just director-specific. Yeah, that's a good question, actually, is about whether or not it is more director-specific, because he's been involved in this, the writing of Wally. He didn't direct it, but he did direct Up and the story for that, and then Inside Out, of course, and Monsters, Inc., and all of those have some much deeper elements. I think Monsters, Inc. probably is the most, quote, kitty of them by far, because you're talking about <laughs> fluffy, cute, <laughs> cuddly monsters. Um, but Up is, I mean, the, the opening montage of Up alone is as heavy as Pixar has ever been. So, yeah, very possible it could be a director thing going forward, and I'm curious to see that as well. Patrick, how did this whole thing play out for you? Like, you have a eight-year-old son now. Oh, happy birthday, Carson. Just turned eight. So I guess he was seven when he watched this in case that makes a difference. But did he see or did he see this and, and how did he respond? We watched it together on Christmas Day. We both really enjoyed it. I don't know because I only have him. I wonder if other kids are like this. I'm sure they are. He watches things over and over again and kind of gets movies stuck in his queue. The Christmas Chronicles, because of my parents, has been on his rotation even after Christmas. And when he had friends over last weekend it was pretty easy for him to pick a movie that he wanted them to watch. It was either going to be that or soul. And I don't know that I would credit it for being like that impactful to him. I think it was from an eight year old's point of view, enjoyable because of the things that you guys mentioned, it's an animated movie. So that's going to have by default a, an attraction for children Although I know, because we've seen anime, we know Satoshi Kon, <laughs> and his filmography is definitely not something that you would say, yeah, kids should watch this. So animation does not equal kid-friendly. What I will say is that I think this film isn't necessarily classified as adult or kids-friendly, necessarily. I think it's, it's family-accessible, because as you mentioned, Kales, it allows for the opportunity to either enjoy the physical comedy, which there's a lot of. There's a lot of small jokes here and there, a lot of fast-moving parts that kids latch onto, he did. And at an age where he's at, it also allows for open conversation to say, what did you think about the choices that Joe made? He doesn't understand getting your shot. He doesn't understand the importance of being part of a jazz quartet. And if this film didn't take place inside a fantasy world of where souls live, this would be a drama and would be equally as effective because the themes are that strong. And so I think having animation and bringing the, what I would call the quintessential Pixar characteristic, which is taking inanimate objects and making them come to life. In this case, the idea of a soul, a soul is, philosophically non-existent or it exists but not in physical form to bring that to life is definitely a pixar thing to do 
I don't see anything remarkable about the animation itself. I don't think anything was like wowing me necessarily, but there's something accessible about being able to bring those things to life to allow you to tell those kinds of stories as parables or as allegory. And those types of stories are accessible to elementary school kids. You know, Paul Bunyan is a story that my, my son has been reading or has been exposed to Rip Van Winkle, these tall tales that he knows are not true necessarily, or at least not true in their entirety, but they point to a message. And so the idea of parables and allegory are easy for kids to understand. And so a movie like this and a lot of movies, particularly inside out, as you mentioned, Coles have that ability to tell a story that is not only entertaining, but accessible to kids, but doesn't lose the impact of the importance of the things it's trying to say. And that's why I think movies like this are successful, not only at the box office, but in longevity. Because if you're popping in a movie 10 years from now, asking yourself why you're doing that, I'm popping in soul, not because I want to see or hear you know, Quiet Coyote. Yeah, that's going to be something fun. I'll remember that. But I'll be more in remembering some of the more intimate moments that we got. Same thing with Inside Out or Up. You talk about the opening sequence of that. That's always going to be memorable. Why? Because it hits so hard. Not necessarily for kids, but it opens up a door to be able to have those types of conversations about what it means to lose something or lose someone. Because kids deal with that too. They deal with loss, maybe not on that more dramatic scale but loss is still something that's very much a human thing and so yeah i think it's i don't say it's kid friendly necessarily but i will say it's family accessible both to adults and children so that was something that got said in the facebook group in the conversation around this same question had come up you know some point after the movie came out someone had said no i don't think they make adult films and i don't think they make kid films either they make family films and that's what you're saying and i would agree and i think what maybe sometimes gets lost when this question comes out amongst people worrying about, is it too adult? Is it accessible, et cetera, is that Pixar's job is not to teach your kids about the afterlife or to teach your kids how to approach their hobbies and their passions, et cetera. But Patrick, you said it, it's a conversation generator because this is a movie that will for lack of a better word, and to use it pun perfectly, I guess, to spark those conversations amongst families where the kids are going to be like, wow, what is that place? Like, what's the bug zapper? What's that? <laughs> What's happening there? And then you're going to have to explain <laughs> heaven and hell and death and all of the good stuff. So it brings these things into the forefront of a family's conversational topics. Instead of trying to tell you this is how everything is in life, and it allows I think families to have that talk with their kids and to go further versus just trying to preach to them, I guess is where I don't feel that it does that. And so I really do enjoy that about it. So I want to talk about the zone, the place depicted as the zone, which can be seen both positively and negatively is responsible for one of my favorite scenes in the film, not a connecting point, but I have to point this out. Early on, when Joe goes to play with Dorothea for the first time at his audition, and he goes into 
the zone before we even know that it's the zone. That sequence is as close to a La La Land callback as you will get. It was beautiful. He is in a restaurant playing for people and he is at a piano and he just gets lost in the music and goes off. And, and it reminded me so much of the zone that Sebastian goes into in La La Land when he's playing the music there on Christmas Eve before he gets kicked out <laughs> for playing the Christmas music. But I just, I loved the comparison of that. And obviously as me being like major La La Land stan here, uh, I, that was a big point for me. I was just like giggling like crazy. And, and my daughter picked up on it too, which was awesome. Cause when we watched it the second time, I didn't tell her and she immediately looked at me and just her eyes, you know, shot wide open. It was great. Anyway, the zone's awesome. I love how they depict the zone, but they can do that both positively and negative. So we see a place where passions are in full force, where it's this visualization of what it feels like to be at your best doing something you love. And, you know, that could be me playing a video game. There are times when I'm playing a video game when everything around me fades away. And I am so in that moment, in that story. It can be with a movie. It can be on a podcast. It could be playing a sport. Uh, it could be anything. Also, great Nick's joke, by the way. Absolutely hilarious. I thought that was, that made me bust out gut laughing. Uh, but it can also be shown as a negative, right? Where they talk about it being a place that can lead to obsession and anxiety and feelings of being lost and so patrick i want to start with you how do you view this depiction of the zone uh, what did you take out of that and the idea that like, how does that affect your view of what inspiration is because that's the key to getting in the zone right well i, I think it's a great allegory a great visual representation of how the thing that inspires us can become almost godlike to an extent if we're not careful. I like that soul, the story doesn't apologize for inspiration. It makes fun of it to an extent. It shows that it really manifests itself in talent. And so there is an external kind of expression of that inspiration. And I think Joe even mentions that music is one of those defining things. He sees all these people and they're in the zone, but obviously there are basketball players, there are actors. I don't think I see any chefs necessarily, although they should probably find a place there to be in the zone. But what's interesting is that it has the ability at this moment, at a certain moment to either become influential to the people around you that change them in some way or can be obsessive to you. And then it becomes one of these things where you focus so much on being the best at something instead of enjoying the mastery of it. In other words, you're looking for what the next thing is. What does it mean to be the best at X? And when you reach that goal, then what is there after that? And over time, you continue to go down this rabbit hole of I've got to get better. I've got to get better. But to what end? And as a side note, to what per, to what benefit to the people around you? And I love that when we see what it does to those who obsess over something, it puts them in this place where they are no good to anybody. And they almost get so overwhelmed 
with trying to stay there and feel comfortable that they lose themselves in a negative way and then they lose touch with everybody else around them as opposed to being in the zone, which is very much momental, momentous in the moment. I don't know if that's the right word for it. It doesn't last long. So if we watch those little pockets of people who are doing their thing, not everybody performs on stage their entire life on a continuous 24-7 basis. They have to stop at some point. Joe has to stop playing at some point or he can't be in this jazz quartet. Um, And when you see how that can play itself out, I think being in the zone allows you to be fueled in order to spread that influence outwardly. And I think that's one of the lessons that Joe is learning here, how that balance of being able to take what's beneficial in the zone and use it for something very extrinsic, external. And I think that struggle is very much played out in a, in a really interesting way. And, And I, I think those scenes were probably my favorite, even though they weren't my connecting point, but I do think they were my favorite because they really put a visual representation of that fine line between being influential and then being influenced to a point of being obsessed. I love the words that Moonwind uses. He actually, the the definition, he says, the zone is enjoyable, but when that joy becomes an obsession, one becomes disconnected from life. And I just, I think that that line of dialogue could not be written any better to describe that thin line you're talking about. What about you, Colette? There's a slang term that um, only people from Georgia, the South, will know about when it comes to the zone. It's called floating. Um, Usually if there's a song that I'm listening to, like a favorite rapper or singer of mine, and he or she is like just bringing these great lyrics and the beat is going good and the production and, you know, everything is is working right. I usually say to my girlfriend, hey, you know, they floating. They're floating on this song. Or whether it's an acting or great performance I see in a film, I say like, oh, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis, he floated in There Will Be Blood. You know, so... When I saw the visual representation of it where Joe, it seems like he's up in the sky. He's above, he's like nowhere near nobody. He's just into his own little personal space and he's just feeling it. You know, he's letting he's letting the rhythm come to him. He's not forcing anything. He's letting it come to him. And I wanted to talk about the inverse of flow, which is what Patrick got to where he calls it an obsession. You know, we usually see that when you're in a flow, I've been in one before, you know, I used to be a um, high school soccer player and there were certain games to where I knew what pass to make. I knew where to be at on the field. I knew about my positioning. I knew just what to do. It was like you had the answers to everything and it feels phenomenal. It feels like, you know, you're, you're a Greek God or something standing on the top of Mount Olympus. You, you have the answers to anything and nothing can bother you. The problem is, is that when you reach that state and you leave out from it, you'll find that sometimes people will want to chase it and live in that constant state forever and ever, you know, cause it feels good. It feels like you have the answer to everything and there's nothing can affect you, but real life doesn't work like that. You know, with the good moments, there are also going to be bad moments. And usually, you know, if someone has a bad moment, they'll usually will do anything to get themselves out of it. So when you see people who are working in their fields and they'll tell you from experience, there are times where they're forcing themselves to do something, where they're, where they're doing something in their occupation and they're forcing it. Like they're not letting it come to them. You know, they have to slow down, look at themselves and be like, hey, just don't force it. Don't, you know, don't 
try to make a feeling. Just let the feeling come to you. Being let the inspiration flow. And a lot of people mistake information, um, inspiration these days. You know, they think it's just something you could just artificially create, and it will be right there, and it will last forever. But no, it's a feeling. Just like willpower, it's a fleeting feeling. You know, so it's all about discipline. It's all about making the right adjustments to what you're doing so that not only you're not chasing the flow, you're being consistent and you're getting better at what you're doing. And the way that is used in soul, I just really like, I just really like the, and there, they show the good side of it and the bad side of it. Um, when you see it with Joe, it just gets to a point to where he, he feels that he's in control when he's playing the piano. And it's a feeling that you don't want to leave. Yeah, it really does. And it made me wonder about, you know, if the film inspired us, did it make us look at our lives any differently? Because that's really what the movie's kind of hook is in a sense is it's urging us and encouraging us, I think to stop and smell the roses. If we want to really put it, bluntly in simple terms and maybe evaluate the way that we approach our own life. And I don't know that it's, you know, banging you over the head saying, do this now. But I think that I came away just with a subconscious mindset of what am I doing? What is my dream? Joe says at one point towards the end of the film, he says, um, so many times I've gotten close to my dreams and something always happens. And I was like, well, that's really impactful statement because maybe it's not what you think it is. You know, he he's going through life thinking that he is fated to do this thing. He is meant to be this thing. At what cost? Like how much of your life do you waste or not pay attention to in order to achieve that long-term goal that you're putting so much weight on that you're putting so much value in and so it definitely got me thinking just about my own life in general whether it's relationships uh you know i'm twice divorced single guy now and how i view those and what i think that my future should look like uh whether it's podcasting and what i envision my dreams for what i would love for this to you know be like at its most popular and at its best. And I, I really enjoyed the fact that the film just naturally encouraged me to do that. And to think about how many of those small moment, moments occur in my life every single day, those moments of getting a piece of pizza and smelling it <laughs> and tasting it, right? And pooping it out my butt. <laughs> Sorry, it was cute. Um, but you know what I mean? Like whether it's playing with the dog for 20 minutes in the yard and not taking it for granted as just a thing I have to do, but a thing that I'm enjoying in the moment that I'm doing it. Patrick. Well, I think that a few things here. One, I was reminded of the, uh, of the, the ever famous Ferris Bueller who said, um, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it, which is a very, very true statement. And I was also thinking about the fact that when we think about our purpose or what what is the meaning of our existence, obviously these are very much human questions we ask. I would qualify that statement, what is my purpose to, what is my purpose right now? 
because what the film does is it gives permission for us to change. And something interesting about the very end is that we don't see what Joe's doing. He walks out of the house. But is he going to the jazz club? Is he going to his class? Or we can assume he's going to his class. He's got that full-time job. But the film is very ambiguous about that. And I don't know that because we want to feel significant as human beings, we want to feel like something is, this is mine. This is who I am. This is what I'm defined by. And if that definition comes at the expense of somebody else's opinion, whether it's a person or an institution, it limits us because we can't grow from that. There's not that growth mindset. There's that, all right, this is how it's supposed to be. And if I fail, that means I'm a failure. No, it means that you either have to expand, grow, be okay with failure, or find something else. Because in my 20s, there were things that inspired me that don't inspire me in my 40s. And that's okay. And when you look at a guy like Joe, I think the lessons he's learning are not that he should give up on his dreams, but that his dreams have the right and almost the responsibility to change with him because he changes. We are not static people. We can't always be the 20-year-old selves that we are. I take more naps now than I probably took in my entire life. And my, and my wife is going, are you getting enough sleep? I say, yes, I am just getting older. And I enjoy napping. And if I have the opportunity to do that, I'm going to do that. I took a three-hour nap today, and I'm probably going to go to sleep and sleep well tonight. Why? Maybe because I require more sleep, and that's okay. If I can get my nine, ten hours sleep in chunks during the day, that's okay with me because it allows me to enjoy the things around me and be able to compartmentalize and say, all right, I can nap later or I can lose some sleep. It's 10 o'clock p.m. right now when we're talking, and it's fine with me. Why? Because I enjoy this. It's worth it. Will I be doing this in my 50s? Maybe. Maybe not. But that's okay because things change and I change. And I like seeing a movie like this that allows us to be able to be given permission, to give us permission to say it's okay to put those things aside, to put away those things in favor of something else. It's actually going to be better for you right now because you're different. You're dynamic. You don't stay the same. And, uh, and, and I, I think we need more of those kinds of messages to give us that kind of grace. I would say that the reason why people, we as a people, we fail to stop and smell the roses in our everyday life is that there's an innate fear in some of us and probably even most of us that we're afraid of passing away without leaving anything worth noting, without being remembered. Um, I, I can tell you that that's been a big stressor on my head, especially now going into my late 20s. You know, people will still look at me and say that, hey, you know, you're still young. You've got plenty of time. But, you know, when you realize that yesterday you were just 15 years old and now you're about close to being 30, you know, you realize that time flies and it feels like the urgency is kicking in that the sand, you know, the sand's eventually going to. The, re the last bit of grain sand is going to reach the bottom of the um, of the clock and it's going to be over. But what I would tell people is that, you know, just because you haven't figured it out doesn't mean you'll never figure it out. I mean, in the film, we see that Joe is going through this. He's going through. The, he sees the events of his life early on in the film. He's like, wow, I, I haven't done anything. You know, you know, what am I doing? You know, is this really my purpose making music? And I think that once we get to the end, he figures out that, you know, if this is my dream, I have to own it. 
You know, I have to believe in it. I have to believe in myself. And that even if I never, even if he never makes it on the national band circuit, you know, him playing the club can probably bring somebody who's in that neighborhood just an immense amount of joy each night. He could be impacting somebody just from doing what he's doing right now. And that's what people need to understand is that we may not be like rock stars or celebrities or we may never be like that. But, hey, we could be making one of our friends happy. You know, I've had people who have come up to me in the store and say that, Kales, you know, the, the reviews you post on Instagram, you know, I, I really like those. And I'm shocked. I'm shocked to see it because for me, it doesn't feel like, you know, an obligation for me doing reviews. I just love doing reviews and talk about films because that's what I grew up loving to do. And to see that someone enjoys that, you know, me that I'm doing just from the goodness of my heart, that means a lot. And, you know, it's very easy in our society. You know, we get influenced by what we see on TV. You know, we see people with these big houses and lots of money, lots of cars. And yeah, that that's nice and everything, but that's not attainable for everybody. But it's important for people to see that, hey, just because you're not seen by everybody doesn't mean you're not seen by somebody who's around you. There could be, there's, could be somebody looking up to you and you don't know about it. And I think at the end, when Joe walks out the door, he has a new refreshed sense of viewing things. You know, he can see like, hey, you know, I like playing music. It's always been my dream. I'm going to continue to do that, you know, no matter what, no matter how hard it may be. But like Patrick said, people were constantly changing. You know, we're constantly changing. The older I get, who knows if I'm still doing this or I found something else, but that's the beauty of it. You know, it's we, we're not fortune tellers. We're not psychic readers. You know, we can't predict exactly what's going to happen. We just have to do the best that we can right now while we are presently here because nothing is promised for us. So true. And I love that you bring up the influencing others and even when you don't know it because the relationship between Joe and Curly is so critical in this film to me. The fact that he is influencing Connie in real time in a way that he doesn't even recognize because to him, it's just a part-time teaching job and it's not what he wants to be doing full-time. It doesn't mean he's not giving it his all, but his mind and his, his eyes are on a bigger prize somewhere else. But meanwhile, he is changing this child's life and it manifests itself by showing you Curly in that the only reason he gets this idea, this, this gig is because of this kid who only went to class because of him back when he was a child. Like his influence, it shows us has been impactful on children and on people he's taught going so far back and having that be the tie that comes in that the only reason he even gets a shot is because of that shows us that that's the more important thing. And that's the inspirational thing that Joey doesn't understand until towards the end of the film. Uh, and that is definitely, I'm so glad you brought that up, Coles, because it's such a huge part of this. I think that we can all take away from that is to, you don't know who you're influencing sometimes, or sometimes maybe you could know, but you choose to not think about it. And it's not as important to you as it is to them. Yeah, Patrick. So as an addendum to that, I would ask rhetorically, would it change how you approach those people if you knew that you were influencing them? I think it could. I mean, I, I think, well, that I think that's a question, good question. It's a good rhetorical question. What if this person 
had the opportunity to give you a gig that you knew about? What if instead of the student who just happened to call you and say, hey, we need a fourth person, what if this person was someone you ran into who was the president of a record label and they had a daughter who was looking to be a better musician? She didn't want to be a better musician, but this record label guy wanted her to. Would you jump at that or over the student that you're teaching after school in band? And I think that that plays a part too is what is our influence? How is it affected by our intent? In other words, am I pouring into someone because I expect something out of it? Or is it better that I don't know who I'm influencing because the influence that I have becomes that more genuine if I don't know who I'm influencing because it comes from a place of honesty. In other words, instead of trying to impress Coles with knowledge about X, Y, and Z, maybe I just communicate that knowledge and somehow Coles gets changed because of it. I'm just using Coles as, as an example. What's more genuine? What's more authentic? Well, obviously it sounds like the latter because it doesn't come from a place of selfishness. And I think that that right there is what defines real passion. Real passion, honestly, is just what comes out of you because you are in love with it. Now, balancing that with not being so obsessed with something because not everybody wants to hear about everything you know or they don't, everybody wants to hear about how great you can play, but you don't have to apologize about the things that you're passionate about. They just come out naturally. And if that is influential in the lives of people around you, it's gonna be because they are influenced by it, not because you're forcing that influence on them. And I think that's that's pretty important too. Yeah, absolutely, man. I totally agree. Totally agree. Um, let's see. So music. Let's talk about music because we talked early on. We kind of mentioned about this being a musical film. There's been some debate about is it a musical story, you know, comparing it to something like Coco that also centers around music as kind of a driving force for the film. How did you take the music in the movie and, and the way that it informed the story? Um, I, I personally, I'll say I really love that there is a different music choice by Atticus and Ross, which was really when I found out that they were going to, uh, sorry, Atticus and Ross, Atticus and Ross is not a thing by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. <laughs> wow. That was weird. Uh, the I thought it was kind of strange choice for a Disney Pixar movie, right? And what we ended up getting is on Earth we have this very jazzy score almost at all times that is completely different than the synthy, very recognizable social network esque score that they have used before that is present when we're in the Great Beyond or the spiritual realm. And I really liked that because not only are these two worlds completely different visually and, and unlike you, Patrick, the animation did completely blow me away. Like, I love it. I just think it is absolutely gorgeous. I think that the Earth animation is so crisp and so good. It was the equivalent of Toy Story 4 kind of animation. It was that kind of glossy perfection to me, but it wasn't creepy because they're not inanimate toys being <laughs> given actual life they were people and i think they looked phenomenal and but the animation in the great beyond i think it might be also because it, it reminds me a little bit of 
uh, Don Hertzfeldt's uh, series of animated short animated films that he's done, um, World of Tomorrow. Uh, it's a beautiful day and some other things. It looks kind of like that, but it's just so unique and weird. <laughs> the animation style. I think that's what makes it interesting to me is that I would have never in my life personally visualized beings in the gray beyond looking like weird geometrical shapes. You know what I mean? And I, I liked that about it or green little blobs either for souls. I'm talking about animation. Now I'm getting on a tangent. My point was about the music. I mentioned the La La Land tie-in that I really enjoyed. Uh, how did the music play for you guys? I'll throw that one to you first, Coles. The music for me was great. Um, the one scene that actually stood out for me involving music was the barbershop scene, where Joe, um, with 22, and Joe, who's now a cat, they go into the barbershop to get a cut, and they're playing a tribe called Quest. Um, check the rhyme. And I was, I, I, I mean, Questlove really was... is a voice actor in that scene. Yeah, I yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's like some 4D Chester playing with us right there. I think but so. I, I mean, me and my girlfriend are big a tribe called Quest fans because we're like 90s heads when it comes to hip hop. So I was like hitting on the show. It's like, baby, baby, look, like they're playing um Check the Rhyme, and she enjoyed it. Now, outside of that. As far as the jazz, I know a lot of people complain that there wasn't a lot of jazz in this film, but I thought there was a pretty good amount. I mean, as far as the scenes of the Great Beyond, there's a lot of time we spent in there, but there's a whole lot of time we spend on Earth. And, you know, I feel that the jazz was used um, sparingly well. Like, it wasn't overbloated, where it's every every scene requires, like, a jazzy score, but it kind of blends into the background. And it's chill. It's very cool. Um, The, the scenes where we finally get the Dorfia... The Dorfia... Is that how you say her name? Um, Dorfia? Dorothea. Dorothea. Yeah. yeah. Dorothea um, Williams Quartet, when they're having their performances, I enjoyed those. I'm a, I'm a huge jazz fan, so I love, you know, hearing a good saxophone. I love hearing a good piano, a good bass, good drums. It was all done good. And for the Trent Reznor and Atticus Roth score, I, you know, I, like you, noticed the same social network vibes I was getting. Like, at first, I thought, I was like, is this going to go straight into, like, a retread of the social network? But what usually these scores between Reznor and Ross have a lot of darkness in it. But this one was a very lighthearted one, and it was full of hope. It was full of triumph. And I really enjoyed it. I mean, they've had a hell of a year with this film and also with the score they did for Mank. You know, these guys are at the top of their game. And I felt that The Great Beyond, the music kind of fit, you know, the... You know, we're dealing with the spiritual. We're dealing with something that's almost blending between the physical and the spiritual. But it feels like earthly. It feels spacey. And it it did it did a pretty good job for me. Um, and I'll go off like you on the tangent as far as the animation. The animation, I didn't really take it to heart because when I first saw it as a screener-wise, and the screener quality is usually standard definition. So, you, you know, I saw the animation. I was like, okay, it's well-designed, but I couldn't really have fully appreciate what it does. But when I finally saw the Disney Plus screen, um, stream last night, I was blown away by it. It looked very, very good. And I think it's one of the best, um, the best Pixar-looking films out there, like, ever made. It's done superbly. Okay, so now that we're just real quickly doing the animation, I'm I'm not trashing the animation in this movie. I mean, Patrick is... hates animation. Everybody, you heard it here first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if this were done as a foreign language film and animation, I would just be done. You know. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to 
to Pixar movies, animation is going to be top notch. This just wasn't one that stood out to me as like, wow. It doesn't mean that it wasn't creative because it was. I especially liked all the uh, the the t- Jerry's. Is it Jerry's or Terry's? I can't remember. Jerry it's... is everybody's name. Terry is unique. Terry is so, the counter. The okay, counter. so both Terry and Jerry. I thought the line art concept was really cool because it created that flexibility. And the ambiguity of the souls obviously makes it great, especially because they're portrayed in like a kid-like fashion, very innocent. Love the blues, all the different things. And of course, it's... It's very consistent. You have warm colors in the real world and then these cool colors in the the nether realm or whatever we're calling it. And I think that the music helps complement those things. You have this very much electronic, ethereal, light kind of score that isn't heavy-handed. And it makes sense in a world that feels very delicate, you know, these souls have just come to life. They're trying to find their place and they're going through all these different phases of trying to become something, getting their spark. And you contrast that with the chaotic world of New York, the unpredictability of this big city that is depicted in such a great way in those opening scenes where Joe and 22 in their opposite bodies and the cat and Joe body are trying to, traverse through this active city and jazz as a type of music is very active and unpredictable now the music in here is still pretty subtle it's not like overblown by any means which i think is really great that's the kind of jazz i like i love the first set of jazz that we get where he's explaining to his band students as he's telling the story and they're kind of like wow that's that's kind of cool. Now, they went back to their iPhones and whatnot, and it played for laughs, but it's those types of moments with the jazz music that I thought were really great, but they couple with the world that we're we're seeing, and it creates a nice reinforcement of the contrasting worlds that we see going from New York, the real world, to the soul universe, pre, pre-Earth type things. And in general, I enjoyed listening to them. I I thought they weren't in conflict with one another. I could listen to them independently or together. And I thought it's just a beautiful score overall between all three of those artists. Agreed. Totally. I think we all really loved it. It's my score of the year. I just want to throw that out here for everybody to hear. I'll be voting for it as number one when it comes to Seattle Awards. I think it's incredible. I think that there are other phenomenal scores. Uh, for me, listenability, like re-listenability, it's, it's up there as my number one. Probably Tenet maybe my number two. I know you're a big fan of that one too, Coles, um, as well. Anywho, moving on, um, one kind of very specific question before we reach into a couple of conversations that I want to have about criticisms of the film. Would the film have impacted you any differently if Joe didn't get a second chance? Point blank. I know from reading some articles that there were other endings in play, and in fact that this was not settled on until pretty close to the end of the film's production as the right way to approach it. I will say right off the bat that I don't know that there is a, quote, right way to approach it. I think there's a way to approach it, and I think that the power is for us to have the discussion about maybe what should, shouldn't happen, what we glean from 
the choice we see on screen versus maybe the ambiguity of the choice that we wouldn't know what would happen in another scenario or kind of interpreting it in our own way. I don't think that it makes a film bad if it ends in a way that you don't agree with, if it makes you think about what each of the possible options could be. Does that make sense? I hope everybody understands that because I think a lot of times I see opinions of movies come up where people are like, well, I didn't like that ending. So the movie's trash <laughs> or whatever. This happened with La La Land quite a bit, frankly. And I understand disagreeing with the choice, but there is a difference in disagreeing with a choice of how you would approach it in your own life disagreeing with a choice and how you think the characters have been built up to that point to where they would then, are they betraying themselves somehow by making that choice? Um, and then just not liking it, but it's perfectly well made and produced and you just don't like it. And so therefore it tanks your opinion. So anyway, I wondered how you guys felt about the end of this and Joe not going to that big, bug zapper in the sky there's a great scene leading up to this that i thought was it was a pretty powerful hit to me and i think it comes right after joe has recovered 22 or maybe it's i think you know i think it's before 22 storms off right uh, when they first get back to the great beyond after being down on earth the first time and we see Terry grab Joe by the hand and walk off with him and say, Joe, you cheated. Just And it's the most firm voice. It's not, acute, it's not angry. It's not goofy sounding. It's just, Joe, you cheated. And I thought that that was a really intentional way of making that scene work to say, everybody in the audience, listen, we're all joking. We're all enjoying this ride. Fact of the matter is, Joe cheated. This is not the way that life goes, or death, I guess, in this case. And so, did either of you feel like it betrayed the reality, maybe, of what our lives we think is going to happen with them? Or were you cool with Joe getting a second chance to go back and live his life differently? Coles, why don't you tell us what you think first? It depends on the framing that the um, viewer is giving, you know, when they're seeing an ending like this. You know, of course, we are accustomed to the feel-good films. You know, the films where a character, they, they're they a happy-go-lucky character, and we automatically connect with them, and then they go through something bad. And then, you know, it could be a scenario where they're close to, you know, the death, or they're close to getting their comeuppance, but then they get a second chance, and they're able to recover, and they're able to defeat the um, barrier that's in, in front of them and able to live a happy ever after life. Now, of course, we all know that death is the ultimate democracy. Um, each one of us is going to go into this process. I mean, it's not going to X any one of us out for any special reasons. It's all going to happen, you know, and I feel that people will, will look at the ending and be like, well, hey, you know, he he technically he died and this is his time to go and there's a purpose behind everything. But also, you can look at Joe getting the second chance as how powerful it is when we are given a second chance and we make good use of it. You know, it would be so just bad to look at something and be, okay, one and done. Like, you only get one shot and then boom, it's over. Like, 
there's a lot of variables that can happen for anything that we do in life, for any decisions that we have. I mean, think about how many things would change just based off of one choice that was made different. And what it would be great for us to actually go back into our past and change something about it. You know, getting a second chance to do some things differently. I'm pretty sure that this would be the number one most requested power that most people will wish for is going back and doing something different, knowing what they know now. And I feel that Joe now finally, at the end, he has the knowledge of, hey, you know, I got to start appreciating my life. I have to start living with a purpose. I have to start, I have to keep going with my dream, not settling. I have to um, not mistake any day as just being worthless. Like every day that above, above ground is a blessing. And having that new sense of knowledge, that's going to impact his life far more than it would be with an ending where he just goes. And yes, it would have been a great ending because he sacrifices himself for 22 to be able to, you know, live life and to go and understand how the world works. That would have been great. I would have loved that too. But there's also a benefit to seeing somebody getting a second chance and doing and being able to have the hindsight knowledge they didn't have before and be able to make a purpose with that. I would say that obviously from a theological perspective this does not work for me at all i'm like this doesn't make sense and i'm okay with that look i'm separating that what makes the ending work well for me is the fact that it reinforces this idea that things change and i love the ambiguity when he walks out that door we don't know what he's doing we make we make assumptions but we don't know we also don't know what happened to 22 whose life did 22 become that ambiguity, I think, makes the ending powerful because it reinforces that permission that Joe now has a modified purpose. Maybe it's new. Maybe it's not. Maybe he still wants to be in that jazz quartet. Maybe he can make both of them work. Maybe both of those things can influence something else. Will he be a teacher his whole life? At his age? Possibly. And then tomorrow he could fall into the manhole. And... What I think makes the ending work even more for me is the fact that prior to that, we get that conversation with these other guys that say, what you did inspired us. It influenced us to say, you know what? You deserve a second chance. And that's so consistent with the tone of the movie and the messages of the movie that it makes it okay to say, yeah, great. Was he the only person that they gave inspiration to? Look, he cheated to begin with by becoming a mentor. He's dead. He's not meant to be a mentor. He's not somebody famous. So we can throw out that whole, well, you know, he didn't deserve a second. Look, he's he he threw out the rule book when he landed in in the blue area. And so if we forgive that, we need to be able to forgive the fact that giving a guy a second chance is equally about the importance of the people around him and the impact that he'll have around them in as much as it's about giving him a second chance to live his life. I think there's a mutual benefit from the choice that he is given. I love the pause in that moment before he decides to go. I don't think he's making like a should I, shouldn't I, but I think he's going, all right, I really do have an opportunity to move forward. And I don't know what that's going to look like. And how amazing is that to go tabula rasa on the rest of your life? I don't know what tomorrow's going to look like, but I know it's going to be something amazing because I'm going to be existing in it. 
and not just existing, but living. So yeah, I think this interpretation or this choice was for me consistent enough to make it a great ending. So I agree wholeheartedly with that and both sides, obviously theologically, I'm like, no, that's not how it works. Pixar is not trying to tell us that theologically that how, that's how it works. I think one thing Pixar is very good at is bringing in a ton of different perspectives. So they actually do this for a lot of the elements of their film, but they have these like brain groups that come brain trust groups that come together to really think about this. So there's elements of like Buddhism and Christianity and Hinduism and like Zen and all kinds of different like spirituality and religious things are into the, the way that we see the great beyond. And I actually like that in a film like this, if it's not going to be straightly Christian, because it's not trying to tell me like everything is a different way. It's like, it's not trying, it's not definable as one specific path which I guess could be its own question. Anyway, my point is, I don't mind it. I like it because they're not trying to preach that this is the way that the end of the life is. It's just a depiction of it to tell its story. That's not the important part, is that this is what happens. And I think that, for me, there's the line that happens right before Joe goes back, where Jerry says to him, we're in the business of inspiration, but it's not often we find ourselves inspired. So we all decided to give you another chance. And I just think that that's beautiful, uh, the way that that is conveyed. And we get Joe's final line, Patrick, like you talked about when he steps out the door. I'm not sure how I'll live my life, but I do know that I'm going to live every minute of it. The reason I love this ending is because we don't get that moment. We don't get that message stinger if Joe just dies. Is it, the ending that makes more sense if Joe just dies? Yes. Is it much, much sadder? Kind of. Yeah. Like, you get to know that he inspired 22, and you get to have joy that 22 is going off to live their life. But you also leave the movie at that point feeling like, man, Joe didn't figure it out until it was too late. And I don't like that. Right. Because that's not what the movie wants us to leave with. It wants us to remember and say to ourselves, like, we're figuring it out before it's too late because we're going to go forward and we're going to live our life every minute at a time. And I think that the choice of having Joe go back lends itself to us being more inspired by it and that that's the purpose of it. It, it really more so than just like story for what the purpose of the story is itself within the movie. Like it's about how the audience is going to react to it, I think. And so for that reason, I really enjoy the ending choice because I get to leave the movie really on a high. And and I would, I just can't even imagine how you end it with Joe going to a bug zapper. And like, that's not a good feeling, frankly. Uh, and I don't think anybody would like that. So I wanted to talk about something in in general conversation. Uh, Pete Doctor tends to get all the credit for Soul. People will say Pete Doctor's the director, and I've been very intentional in my social media use to call out that Soul was in fact co-directed and co-written by Kemp Powers, a black playwright who was also responsible for writing the screenplay of Patrick's favorite movie, One Night in Miami, last year, and. He was brought in during the production of this film 
in order to provide needed, quote, soul to the story. I wondered what you guys thought about that. And do you, how do you think that his importance plays into the final product that we got and to the fact that maybe we need more of this diversity in filmmaking, the fact that we could respond to this in the way we did, because this is the first ever black lead character in a Pixar film, which is crazy when you think about how many there are. There's a lot. And this is the first time we've gotten one. Um, but what is the, how much do, should we be elevating the fact that Kemp Powers is an equal part of creating this specific world and what, what it might have looked like without him if it was just Pete Doctor or no people of color that were contributing to the creation of this world? Coles, what do you think? It's just like you said, um, this is the um, first black lead male character in um, a Pixar film. So this is a, a milestone. This is a big moment. So if you're going to do the story right, it would be very important to bring in a person of color who knows the tone and the way to tell this story. You know, I, when I watch a film and I see the way that black characters are portrayed, it could be in a film in 1960 or it could be a film in 2020. I can easily tell when the film was either written by someone who was not a person of color and by someone who's written by a person of color. It's the personal touches. It's the um, the way that certain slang words are used, the way that the characters look, the way that the characters dress, the way that the characters move and live in this world. You know, it, it's very easy to fall into the same stereotypes we've seen of people of color in films. So when you see a film that does write by the people of color, you can usually chalk that up to someone who's working behind the scenes who is a person of color. And we've been, we have all been talking about, especially not just last summer, but the summer before that, we've been talking about how it's very important for more black voices to be involved in Hollywood. Um, it's time that the barriers are, the barriers are now breaking down and we're starting to get a lot more black creators behind the camera, some in front of the camera and even some in the big power positions in Hollywood. And that's a great thing. And it leads to these stories that are going to be exposed to a wide audience. Millions of people have already seen soul at this point. And many people probably got a good lesson on the way that you can view and see African-American person on screen, you know, because it's very easy for us to look back at history and see the way that African-Americans were talked about and the way they were portrayed in entertainment or even on Broadway or even in the news media, the, you know, them just being monsters or being people who are inferior, who don't think or being lazy. But when you have films like Soul and you have somebody like Kemp Powers, who is a person of color and knows you know, the way that that life is and bringing him into a film like this and adding those personal touches and those um, and the soul, like you said, Aaron, I mean, it makes a whole lot of difference. It, and it makes me happy knowing that there are going to be people of color kids growing up and watching movies like this, because me, I didn't have this opportunity. You know, I had to um, wait. I had to wait until like a few years ago to even see the first black superhero on the screen. So. The best thing about, you know, Kemp Powers and his involvement with Soul is that he's adding to the lineage of films that black kids are going to grow up with. And they're going to be able to refer to and see positive depictions of people who look like them. 
And as Aaron, I saw your your post the other night, and you were having a discussion with someone about, you know, how involved was Kemp Powers in on this? I mean, if the guy's the co-director and the co-writer, that means that he had a big influence on the story in the production. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Yes, Pete Doctor is director, but I'm sure Pete Doctor went to Kemp Powers for some very important elements in the story. So yes, he he is a part of Soul, and he created Soul in the story. <laughs> Yeah, I don't have much more to add to that. I think that when you watch this narrative play out, what you have are levels of authenticity that you wouldn't get and a peek at black culture that is accessible, just like the whole movie is accessible, not just to kids and adults, you know, you know, both alike. Two parts stand out to me. One is the barbershop scene. I think it's a fantastic example of what it would be like to walk into a barbershop, a, a black barbershop. I've never been to a barbershop in my life. I think there's a two-step process I want to get to. I want to go to a barbershop and get the barbershop treatment. And I want to go into a black barbershop. There's like two or three in about a, a five-mile radius of, of our house for curiosity, obviously, but also just for more awareness. And Soul gives us a peek into that. Of the idea of seeing people having certain chairs that they go to, having to wait in line because there's a particular barber that you want to see. Yes, that exists in white barbershops, I'm sure, but it's very much specific. And the conversations that take place in there, I think, are very, uh, very much authentic. The other is a, a small moment when Joe is either telling the story about the first time that his dad took him to a jazz club. We get education from one black man to another, and he says something very interesting. He says, I want you to listen to this, if for no other reason than just to understand that this is another contribution that we have made to this world. You know, Jazz is a black contribution, and it's those things that I think Kemp Powers has done so well, and he does it in One Night in Miami. We'll talk more about that in a few weeks, That or next week, yeah, it's turn around he adds these pieces of dialogue that invite people who don't understand to come in and try to understand it's not divisive it's it's inviting it's inclusive it's i won't call it safe i don't want to use that word i'd rather call it opportunistic for him to say this is an interesting part this is an important part of our culture and i want you to see it and I don't want you to be afraid of it, okay? Because when I was growing up, I mean, I would hang out with some of my black friends and I would feel very awkward when I was in a situation where it was a predominantly black event going on because I was the only white guy, which, you know, today's day and age was like, yeah, now you see how we feel being around the whole white thing. But I look at this and I see a movie that adds, quote, soul to the movie. It's a through line, this idea of, a jazz musician who is passionate about this thing that wouldn't work if you didn't have that black influence. But at the same time, it creates an opportunity to not only just satisfy curiosity, but ask more questions. I didn't know this took place then. I'd like to know more about that. And it feels more inviting than just stop being ignorant. Of course you don't know about that because you're not, you're not black. 
okay, I would like to know. This is really interesting, and it allows me to ask more questions in a way where I don't feel like I'm being patronized, where the people that I'm asking those questions trust me to say that I'm really just trying to take away some of the miseducation I have or the misinformation that I have. And it is, it's wonderful and it's entertaining to say the least, but in general, I think it's what helps a film like this become accessible, not only to kids and adults, but also to a wide range of cultural people from, from different races. I agree. I agree. And there's a short 12 minute interview with Kemp powers on Disney plus there's a series called inside Pixar and the very first one is with him. And I, I would love people to go check it out. I'm going to tell you a couple of the highlights though. And this is part of why I think it's really important to use his name when we talk about this movie and not just Pete doctor and call it another Pete doctor film only. He was brought in because Pete doctor recognized that Joe was not a robust character and they couldn't do it without someone who had that lived in experience. He says, when I started, the character was a blank slate. When he got to Joe, he said he came in to help him feel authentically black. Kemp is a black man. He's a black man living in New York. He's a black man who loves jazz, whose own son is named after a jazz musician. So these elements were put in there. The whole barbershop scene was not in the screenplay until Kemp Powers came into the writing room. And he said, we need to add something that is very specific to black culture. And he was talking in this interview about how if he was going to go to a gig, if any black person was going to go out and have this experience where they were in front of people, the first thing that they would think to do is get their hair lined up. And that was the natural, authentic thing for that culture. He, he goes on to make a great joke about it. He's like, I shouldn't even be on the camera right now because my hair needs lined up. And then he, But he's like, that's what you would do. And he's like, so that's why that needs to be depicted. He said, because the barbershop is an authentic and important space. It is a hub of community for black culture. He's like, when we're, when we're there, we're all the same. When you're there, you have worth and what you feel matters. And it's, it's beautiful that you see that in the scene, right? When it, it, coming out, like he is able to convey that. He's a great writer. In addition to his contribution alone, I think that it's important to note that Pixar created an, two things. An internal culture trust is what they called it, of current employees that came together to talk about how the film depicted culture. And an external culture trust of representation experts who also thought about those same things. And then they took feedback from both of these groups and considered it and put it all together to create this screenplay. And that is how we come out with something that is so moving and so impactful for people and feels so authentic. And it's a great roadmap for other studios to understand and hopefully start to look at when they are making their movies, because it's not that hard to do. And it can be completely and just incredibly like life-changing for the, the approach your film is going to end up taking. So I love that. Love that, love that, love that. Um, and I'm excited to talk more about Kemp Powers next week when we get to One Night in Miami. 
Well, let's wrap this up with our connecting points as we always do. And we are going to take these in chronological order of the film. And since we just were talking about the barbershop, I feel like it's really the smart thing to do to lead with that. So, boy, I just gave it away. Sorry. Patrick, let's start with your connecting point. What uh, is it? I love the opening credits. And I was oh, thinking, yeah, just kidding. You really are going <laughs> chronological. Yeah, I'm really going to. Let's start with the opening credits. The barbershop scene is absolutely hands down my connecting point for a number of reasons. And specifically it comes down to Des. The scene set up where Joe needs a haircut. He's been shaved down the middle. He's got an interesting haircut at this point. He gets into the barber chair and of course it's not him in the body, but it's 22. Eventually the, Two of them sit down, and Des gives Joe, I'll call him Joe, uh, permission to be the boss. It's like, when you're in the chair, you're in charge, that kind of thing. And what we see play out is 22 in Joe's body get all existential and telling this long, what seems like a long story as Des is going through giving him his haircut and getting him all cleaned up. Everybody's intrigued, and by the end of the conversation, we don't get to hear all the details. We get the gist of it. Des says, man, I didn't know you were so deep, Joe. And this is where I connect, because then it gets into talking about Des. And 22 is asking Des, well, what about, you know, you're a great barber. Isn't that what you've always wanted to do? He says, no, I wanted to be a veterinarian. And he said, what happened? He said, well... I I had a kid, and veterinarian school is a lot more expensive than barbershop school, and so this is what it is. And the whole time, you know, he's doing his stuff. I, by the way, just as a side note, in live action, I love the choreography and blocking of scenes where you have two or more people doing something as they're talking. White Christmas does this. There's a scene with the two main characters getting dressed after a show and going through this really great dialogue. This is the same way. Obviously, animation works differently. It's a little bit easier to block, but it's still a lot of work. And so Des is going through all this, and 22 asks a question. He says, man, that must have, you know, that must be terrifying you know, for you. I'm sorry that you can't be a veterinarian. He goes, I'm not. I love my job. I love doing what I'm doing. And essentially what he says is I get a chance to hear people's stories and to provide something for them, provide them an opportunity to share and to be a part of something important. And so for an hour – while they're sitting in this chair, they get to share with me their stories, and if need be, I get to share mine. And I love, love, love his attitude because he realized that it wasn't always going to have to be about veterinarian school. Now, yeah, could he go back to that? Possibly, but man, he's doing something he loves. Not just that he's good at it, he got good at it, but he learned to love it, and he does love it. It's not like he's reluctantly saying – well, I'm good at it and it pays the bills. I guess I gotta love it. No, he's like, I love what I do. And the byproduct of that is the influence that I have on people. And I think Des has this attitude that reflects this line from a show called Halt and Catch Fire where a character named Joe McMillan is talking about computers and about the future of computers. And he says, computers aren't the thing. Computers are the thing that gets us to the thing. The attitude behind that is that the future is out there 
And we need to find ways to harness what we have right now to get to what it is that we want. And when I look at a character like Des and this conversation he's having with 22, I feel like he latched on to that thing, which was being a barber in order to realize what it is that he wants to do. And that's help people. He could help people as a veterinarian too. And he would probably be successful emotionally, financially, whatever. But there's something interesting in him where he has learned and appreciated the fact that when people come in and sit at his chair, it is an open forum to talk about life. And I love the tag at the end where as they're leaving, he says, I'm just glad we just we didn't talk about just jazz. Man, I really appreciate that. And there's this like exchange. It's not just about one person talking the whole time. It's about this mutual exchange of learning about each other and appreciating each other. And for me, that's how I want to be. Whatever I'm doing, whatever I'm passionate about, whether it's directing, writing, people leading, podcasting, I want to be able to have that engagement with people where not that I'm changing their lives with every conversation, but that they can walk away from a conversation with me and we can feel mutually benef benefited from each other. So I can feel like, man, that conversation didn't have to be earth shattering or world changing, but maybe in that moment, maybe for that hour, maybe for those 30 minutes, that conversation was encouraging to that person. And knowing that, I get something from it. And I think that's the attitude that Des emits is that he realizes being a barber is not about being the best barber. It's about what the barber allows him to do. And I think those were the beginning points of where Joe started realizing, hmm, that's something interesting to think about. And I think it plays itself out as we as we go through the story and eventually get to that that ending that we all appreciate. Yeah, man, it was like such a close call for me between the barbershop and what my connecting point ultimately was. Uh, and for all of those reasons, I won't just go down a list of, you know, copying everything you said. I love the little nod that David Diggs is doing a cameo here as Paul because it's such a small role. Uh, but to have like a known name, famous actor in. I also love that Paul, after the barbershop, we find out that he's the one that Terry accidentally kills. I didn't notice that the first time I watched the film. The second time I realized it was Paul and that he's going to like have to go from that moment where he gets, you know, cut on by uh 22. He says, Oh, I get, it. he's just criticizing me for covering up the pain of his own failed dreams. He gets to, he gets to walk away with that. And then he gets like drawn into the ground to die. And then this like creature talks to him out of his chip bag. It was, it's the most hilarious thing. Just looking at his face and realizing it's the same character. You guys might've noticed it was him the whole time. I didn't, but I was like, wow, that's amazing. Uh, but yeah, Patrick, I, I agree. I think that it is just so cool to have that barbershop scene. I think even though it's not my connecting point for me, I think it is the most important scene in the movie because it really both shows 22 what it can be like to be a part of a culture, to be part of Earth in a way that there's no other place you could really – I mean, maybe there's another place, but there's very few ways you could express that to a soul that is on Earth trying to learn about Earth, you know what I mean, in such a 
easily digestible manner and it works just beautifully there. So I, I love it as well. Well, my connecting point is up next, I think chronologically. So uh, mine is, I'm going to call it Epiphany. And it is the track Epiphany is going to be the track that is playing from the score during most of this. But the lead up to this moment is they're back on, they're back on uh, the end of the film or towards the end of the film. Sorry, they're back in whatchamacallit land. Um, the great beyond. I don't know why I can't think of what to call it. The spiritual realm. But 22 is feeling like she has no purpose and is no good. And Joe has essentially pushed her away right at this point but he has succeeded he wins that spot in the quartet which of course should make him happy because he has achieved his purpose and it begins here with joe standing outside of the gig waiting for a car and he's talking to dorothy and he says i've been waiting for this day my whole life i thought i'd feel different and she tells him this really interestingly cute story about a fish. And basically the whole thing is like the grass is always greener on the other side is the way that the story is referring to and how Joe is not seeing the forest for the trees. And it gets him thinking about, should he just be accepting right here, right now, what this means for him? And he goes home and he sits down at his piano and this track epiphany is playing throughout. It's my favorite track of the entire year of any soundtrack or score. And he starts pulling those things out of his pocket that 22 left in them. And with this gorgeous music, I'm always a sucker for this. It always is very emotionally evocative for me. But we see him start to remember these flashbacks of 22 being exciting about just living, about jazzing and all of the ways that it sparked her. Right. And it transitions from that into these flashbacks of his own life and the small things that he found enjoyable that weren't necessarily all music related. There's a quick shot of his dad playing piano with him, but there's food and there's him looking at fireworks there's him teaching Curly how to play drums, which I thought was really adorable. It's like a little baby Curly in there. There's him standing with his feet in the ocean next to his mom. And we don't even really talk this podcast about the parental reconciliation that takes place in this film. It's a whole other theme that we didn't even really get to, but it's beautiful the way that it's, it's dealt with here. And he remembers her riding in the subway, being in New York at night, seeing the skyline. And he holds up that little leaf that had fallen down that had mesmerized 22 at one point. And he really, at that point, realizes that regular old living is the purpose. And he begins to play because it inspires him. And this is how he, you know, goes into the zone. And I, this sequence, guys, is the time in the film where it brings me to tears. And I think it's because... I can relate so hard to Joe in this moment, attaching memories and feelings to objects. I do this all the time. I have maybe a string in my wallet that is representative of a movie that reminded me of a person. And, you know, or 
I have a, a, any sort of like knickknack or trinket that recalls a feeling that I had that was tied to that. And so I think that it's a beautiful depiction of how those things can be so impactful when it comes to like provoking these memories and that emotion. And it's just magical. And I think that the message here is pretty blunt. And I, and I like that because it's easy to digest. It's easy to notice what Joe is feeling for both, I think, kids and adults. It's very clear. And I, I think that that's important, that everyone understands that. Whether it's kids or adults, at any phase of their lives, while they're growing, you know, growing through them and growing up, that they see a story that says, hey, don't worry about whether or not you achieve a specific goal that you assumed was your purpose. If you live every day and you enjoy it, like you said, Coles, because you're not promised anymore, then your purpose will be fulfilled. You are fulfilling a purpose that way. And I think it doubles as a great reminder, like, don't let people sway you or push you away from what you love, because this is what triggers Joe to then go after 22. And it, and it bothers me in this moment. I think it's very realistic, but it bothers me because prior to this, Joe has acted like a gatekeeper for loving music throughout the film, almost to a ridiculous extent. He tells 22 multiple times, like, you can't like music. You only like music because you're in my body. As if 22 can't have their own passionate love for music that is independent of Joe. And I think that this sequence is part of what helps him recognize that and go forth to, to reconcile with 22. And I think we can all get like that. We can all get possessive of our hobbies and our own passions and be like, well, you know, maybe you shouldn't podcast. You know, you, you really don't have the experience. Well, I didn't have experience when I started. You know what I mean? And so I think we can do that sometimes. Um, but it's okay to share and let people love what they love, even if it's the same thing as you. So yeah, that, that whole sequence right there is just absolutely gorgeous and beautiful for me um, and super connecting, I guess, as you will. Well, our last one, Gilles, you're up. What was your connecting point? My connecting point was the moment when Joe and 22 are finally going earthbound and 22 finally gets her earth pass. And mostly the power of the scene lays in the buildup. You know, I'm going to kind of be going off of what you're saying, Aaron, but when 22, she finds herself eventually in the um, land of lost souls. She's um, lost belief. She's lost hope. She feels that she'll never find a purpose. She's replaying the events of her head of Joe telling her like, hey, you don't have a purpose. She's replaying all these negative comments, you know, back in her head and it's causing her to grow more dark and dark. And I couldn't help but notice that. Because oftentimes, as people, we our brains retain mostly negative information. You know, most times we don't really take advantage of the positive memories we have. The traumatic memories are the, some, are the things that lay on us. They linger with us. They affect us day to day. You know, oftentimes we find ourselves with doubt when we're doing new things or trying something new. We, we question ourselves, like, am I doing the right thing? Or should I be doing this? Or what about the person who told me that I can't do this? this like are they right you know the thing that really changed that for me and really hit me the most was that joe came back and he ended up helping 22 find her purpose he ended up helping her 
become appreciative of what life has what life has to offer. You know, she asks him like, "How do how do I get my past? Like, what 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 was my passion?" And Joe was like, "Nothing. It's like that last box feels when you are ready to live." And it was great seeing Joe be this mentor and pulling someone out of that darkness because we never know the battles that one of us is facing on a day-to-day basis. I always go by the adage, like, tell somebody hi when you're walking past them, like, maybe sometimes a random stranger. Now, depending on how comfortable you are in social situations, because you never know. A person could be fighting a battle that day. They could have had a bad sleep last night. They could have had a bad day of work. They could have um, something new just happen and it's throwing their whole life out of balance. Like, being able to look at somebody and realizing that they're down and caring about them enough to pull them out of that darkness and help them live and appreciate life is a powerful thing. And it's what I want to dedicate my life to. Like, no matter what my career may be, you know, whether it's doing podcasting or writing reviews or working my job or, you know, just caring about my family or caring about my friends, I want to be the person that anybody can come to and look for guidance, look for some positivity, look for hope, look for a reason to want to live on this planet. Because there's so many things that affect us day to day that make it so hard for us to get through sometimes. Um, There was a film I watched the other night, um, Princess um, Monoroke. It's a Studio Gib film. I'm hoping I pronounced that wrong. If If I'm pronouncing it wrong, it's... My bad. Princess Mononoke. Yes, yes. There you go. Great film. There is a quote that goes verbatim like this. Life is suffering. You know, life is pain. There's a lot of pain in our lives, but every day we have to wake up and find reasons to exist, to live. And I feel that the final message of soul is is whatever you need to do, whether it's requiring to look at yourself, whether it's requiring having somebody who cares about you enough to help you, or whether it's doing some soul searching, find a reason to want to live. Find a reason to want to do better each day. Find a reason to enjoy what life has to offer. Even if you don't have all the things that you want, or if you're not in a situation that you want to be, you can work towards that and still be happy and still be thankful and grateful for everything you have. And 22 is finally getting her chance to go to Earth. I, I see it as um, hope and triumph. And like you said, Aaron, when the music is playing in the background, I couldn't help but feel just like my heart growing. You know, it, it's a triumphant moment. It's somebody who's finding a reason to want to take the journey called life, even with his speed bumps. There's going to be good moments along the way. And I feel that life is all about finding those good moments in chunks and being able to appreciate them when they come along. Fantastic, Kales. Aaron, great connecting points. And we hope that everyone in here, hopefully you've watched the movie if you're listening to this conversation at this point, that you found some similar connecting points or maybe you have found some different ones and you might want to bring those to the Facebook group and tell us all about them. Well, that will wrap up this episode of Feelin' Film. Have a great week, everyone. Aaron, Kales, as always, thanks for another great conversation. and We'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. 
very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filled.